Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come and worship with you with you the word and study and that you would just be able to fellowship together. We ask that you bless this time, that you guide and lead it with your Holy Spirit. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. Ezekiel 22, starting at verse 26. And we're continuing talking about Jerusalem and the, and the curses on Jerusalem. Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They, have, they put no difference between the holy and the profane, neither have they showed difference between the clean and unclean, and have hid their eyes from my, from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. Her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves raving in the prey to shed blood and to destroy souls and to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have dubbed you them with untempered mortar, seeing vanity and de divining lies unto them, saying, Thus saith the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery, and have vexed the poor and needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me in, for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore I have poured out my indignation upon them, and I have consumed them with my fire, the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, says the Lord God. So we're looking at this. He's continuing his uh, condemnation of uh, Jerusalem. And he says, his priests have violated my law. And it's kind of an interesting thing. The priests should be the ones that are the most obedient to the law because they should know the law. And yet he says, the priests are violating, violating the law. And they're supposed to be the teachers. They're supposed to be the ones telling others about God and how to follow him. And they're, they're being disobedient. It says they have profaned or made common my holy things. They put no difference between the holy and the profane. This is something we're seeing in our day and age where churches oftentimes are saying that there's really no difference between right and wrong, good and evil and trying to blend the two, and they'll go, well, grace covers everything, so, you know, and they use grace as a license to sin, and uh, don't try to make it where there is an important thing to do. And it is a fine line to walk where you say grace does overcome, but there's consequences when you do wrong. There is wrong, right and wrong. There isn't, when we say the grace will cover, it doesn't mean that there is no difference and that you can just go out and do what you want and have no problems. If you go out and sin, you're going to pay for your sin. And God calls it sin. And, you know, and I've said often, I want all people to come into our church. I don't care what sin they're doing when they come in. If they're trying to promote their lifestyle, that's a different story altogether. But at the same time, I'm not going to say that their sin is not sin because they're going to hear me say that. Which means eventually they're going to hear me say that their sin is a sin. They're either going to say, yes, I agree with you or... Well, at least he didn't condemn me and, and not and walk out, or they're going to leave. And there are several people who have left, saying, I'm not going there. He, he says, what I'm doing is a sin. Well, it's not me who says it. It's God who says it. And I have to agree with God. When God says something, I have to agree with God and not try to water it down. And yet he's saying, my priests have watered it down. There's no clean or unclean. There's no right and wrong. There's no, there's no good and bad because they've, de they've destroyed the difference between them. Neither they put a difference between the unclean and, and the clean. They have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, and, and I am profaned among them. This is kind of an interesting thing. It says, they have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths. 
Jeremiah tells them that they're going into the in captivity and one of the big reasons they're going in is because they haven't been practicing the Sabbatical year. They've lived in the land for 490 years and they have not let the land rest. And he says, okay, you haven't done that. I'm going to put you in captivity for 70 years. And then Jeremiah goes on to say, and, and Cyrus, my, my shepherd, will come along and he will send you back to your, your people. Now, can you imagine when he makes this, promote, this uh, prediction, there's nobody named Cyrus alive. Uh, the Medo-Persian Empire is a small tribal community. <laughs> and he says, this person named Cyrus from this area is going to send my people back. You know, can you imagine how it was when Daniel got to show Cyrus the, the words on paper where his name and his country are already listed? See, you, you know, it says right here, you're going to send the people back. And like, you can picture Cyrus going, well, when, when was this written? Well, 75 years ago. Yeah. Uh, so we see this process going on. But God is saying, I am profaned among them. He said, I'm not profaned, but I am profaned among them. The way they look at him is that he is dirty and worthless. And you know, the sad thing is there's a lot of people who say they're Christians who look at God that way. Well, you know, and you'll hear it when you go witnessing. Well, and they're not even Christians, but my God would never send anybody to hell. Well, your God's not the same God. You have a profane, profane God, and it's not the same God that we're talking about. It's not God. And even, unfortunately, you'll hear Christians will talk about how they control God, you know, and, and they, they tell God what they want. They, they tell God how he's going to meet their needs and all these other things. And sometimes that scares me when people do that. You know, God, I demand because you said this and they take a verse out of context and demand something from God. And you're like, well, if you're going to do that next time, make sure I'm standing way away from you so the lightning bolt that hits you won't hit me in, in, by accident. Yeah, God, God is, is not one you demand things from. You ask him from. You can remind him of the scripture sometimes, you know, but don't go and demand things to him. This is part of the name it and claim it. God, you said you're going to meet all my needs, and my need is that I need that Lamborghini. <laughs> you know, God, I just can't live without that Lamborghini, so it's a need. And, you know, we laugh about that, but I've heard people pray for outlandish things from God that aren't needs. And they pray in such a way that they're virtually demanding from God that he meets that desire of their heart because, it, you know, and they'll quote verses that God says he'll give them the desire of their hearts. And I'm going, well, you need to pray in Jesus' name, which means pray in his authority and his, what he desires, not what you desire. And here he's saying, you're priests, you're priests are rebellious. Verse 27, her princes in the midst of her are like wolves ravening the prey to shed blood and to destroy souls and to get dishonest gain. He says, the pre, your, your princes, they're out destroying people, ravening, destroying, tearing. They're, they're tearing their own people up. They're, they're shedding blood and they're getting dishonest gain. They're overtaxing their people. They're you know, doing unfair things to them. And this is not a pretty time, you know, time to be living in Jerusalem. Okay. The church is dishonest. The, the government is dishonest. It kind of sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> Nothing new under the sun. You know, having many churches in our world right now that are dishonest, having many governments that are dishonest, including our own, headed very much to dishonesty. You know, 
one thing about when you read the Bible, you could be just it's kind of like reading the newspaper when you, when you think about it sometimes. What was happening in the past is happening today. Nothing new under the sun you know, is what Solomon tells us. And it really isn't. Uh, what we're going through today in our world, what happened in all the way back here in Jerusalem, it happened to Babylon, it happened to Greece, it happened to Rome. All these places have had this stuff happen to them. And here he says, you know, your, your own princes are out to get you. And it says, and our prophets have dubbed them with untempered mortars, seeing vanity and lying, divining lies unto them, saying, Thus saith the Lord when the Lord has not spoken. And otherwise, this, this, it puts, this uh, phrase says to, to put fresh mortar on or literally to whitewash. You know, you cover the crack. You make it look like it's been fixed without fixing the cracks. Uh, you paint over the, the problems and so they're hidden. We still have it done in this day and age where people will whitewash the problem. Politicians do it all the time. They whitewash the problem and make it look like there's no problem. And it says, and this one, I, you know, they, they see vanity or emptiness and they divine lies saying, thus saith the Lord God when the Lord has not spoken. This is something if you've ever spent time in the Pentecostal name it and claim it type churches, you hear a lot of this. Thus saith the Lord, or this is what you know, the Lord told me. And you know, the, the thing about that, when, you, when you're told that, you're supposed to just shut up and not make any argument because the Lord spoke to them. You know, he may have told them to do something totally anti-biblical, but the Lord told me, and that's supposed to shut up all arguments. And yet, this is what's always been going on. All through the Old Testament, there was all these people that would say, thus says the Lord, or the Lord told me, and so I'm telling you, now you did shut down all arguments. You're not to argue with me because this is what God said. And we want to be very careful with that. If you're going to say God spoke to me or God told me, make sure that it's God who spoke to you and that God told you. One of my very big rules of thumb is if it's something I want to do, it's probably, there's no way that I could tell you God told me to do something. He may or may not have, but I... But my own emotions are playing a game in that one. Now, if it's something I really don't want to do and I feel very strongly that God's wanting me to do it, I'll be willing to say God told me to do it. When God told me to move to Kingman, I knew it was God because there was no way I wanted to move to Kingman. Okay, so I could tell you very clearly God told me to do it. And it's been a very good move for us. And I've told you, I argued with God. I go, God, I can go to one of these other places and make money. I don't need to go to Kingman where there's no, no money for a computer programmer. And God kept telling, you're going to Kingman. I could have done my pro-con list, and Kingman would not have won on a pro-con list. There was one, one pro on there. My mom lived here. That was the only pro on the entire list. You know, it's like, God, uh, I've lived far away from my mom for all my life. That's not a big reason to go move to Kingman. But I knew that God wanted me in Kingman. Came to you, was this as an option? It was a very strong unction. It was a knowledge. There was no denying that I was supposed to be here even though I didn't want to be. And that was a big thing. If I want something that I, if I'm feeling I have to do something that I don't want to do, I give it a lot of serious consideration. God, is this really you? Because it can still not be God, but... There's no hard and fast rule. No, because the minute you try to make a rule, God's going to step out of the box and tell you that he's not going to be put into a box. But I can tell you that if you're trying to say God's telling you to do something you want to do, 
you really have to be careful about is that what God's telling you or is it something I want to do and I'm trying to put God to justify it. I've, on, on several times, many times in my life, I thought it was God, I acted on it and it wasn't God. Other times I've acted on it believing that it was God and it was God. Most of it is learning to hear his voice and acting upon it. When I first came up to this church to be a substitute pastor, and that was, let's see, I've been here five years, and it was probably four years before that, about nine years ago. I knew when I got done, God told me this would be my church. I'm going, God, that doesn't make any sense. You know, this, this pastor's not looking to go anywhere that I knew of. You know, he's, he seems to be happy, reasonably content here. You know, uh, I don't see this being my church. And I wrote it off that, okay, I want to be a pastor so bad that, that I'm thinking this is going to be my church. You know, and I... Well, for this, for this, hearing, coming to this church, I just knew. God just impressed it on my, so heavily. It wasn't really an audible voice for me in that particular case. I've only heard one audible time that God talked to me. Uh, but this was not an audible voice. It was just, I knew that this was my church. Now, I can't tell you how I knew it. It was just, it, it hit me so heavy, this is going to be your church. But just a feeling, strong feeling that you had, you could describe as a voice. Yeah. And internally, it probably was a voice. I mean, it would, but I argued with God. I'm going, God, I don't see how this could be. This pastor's just gone for a vacation. He's not, it's not like he's planning to leave, you know. And I, I figured he'd leave sometime. I'd kick, so I go, okay, God, I'll be waiting for, you know, when I find out the church is open, I will, I will apply. The last question, it's, a, it's a, a feeling that's different from your feeling that you need something for yourself. Very different. When, when I think it's God, it's very different than anything that I come up with. It's just, unction is a good word for it. It's just, it is so heavy upon you that you really can't shake it. And sometimes it literally is just something so out of the blue that it makes no sense. Uh, it's, it is something that is much deeper. It's not just when it's happened to me. And it doesn't happen often. But when it happens, I just know that it's not me. Now, I still, you still have to be careful when you get that strong feeling because you could still be a very deep thought of your own and you have to go into prayer and say, God, is this really what you want? In my case with the church, it was like, okay, God, if it's yours, I'm going to just store it away in the, in the future. And when that pastor left, they put a pastor in here so fast, I didn't even know this church had opened up. And I'm going, okay, God, I thought you told me it was going to be my church and and I didn't uh, get it, so I'm going, okay, I'll wait to see what happens now. He didn't tell me when. When you are at your immature stages as a Christian, yes, you look for signs. Gideon wanted a sign because he was immature. He didn't want to trust God. As you get to a place where you learn God's voice, and it really is just a matter of starting to learn God's voice, and I, and I use the idea of the old telephones before we had, before we had caller ID. You had no idea who it was you were going to talk to. You picked up the phone. And if you knew the person, two or three words into the conversation, you knew who you were talking to. Even if they didn't say, hi, this is dad, you know, uh, you know, you know oh, hi, dad, <laughs> or hi, mom, or hi, Susie, or whoever it might be, you know, you, you knew who it was. The longer you spend getting to know God's voice, the more you're going to know his voice without having to argue with him and ask for a bunch of signs. Now, I will still... To this day, I will go, God, if it's not for you, I'm going to ask you to close this door, but I think it's your voice. I want to step into it. 
God, if there's something I need to know about this, help me and ask for guidance. We all need to do this. We need to decide that God has a plan for us and we need to go to him in the middle of just about every decision. Good example was Saturday when we were out soul winning. There was only a handful of people and I go, God, who should I speak to first? And this one guy came into my total vision. I went to talk talk to him. I spent 15, 20 minutes with him. Got done with him. I'm going, okay, God, who should I speak to now? And I didn't have anybody to speak to. You know, and there was lots of people around me. And we kind of walked up this little sidewalk, and here's a guy with his son. We, and that's the guy we spoke to. The next time I went out, I did not ask God, who should I speak to next? And I went through three people who really didn't want to talk to me. Now, is that, you know, most of the world will say, well, that's just consequence. No, I really believe it was the fact that God was making a point that you didn't ask me who to speak to next. You know, you were just doing things in your own strength, thinking, you know, having, you'd had a good time and you were just ready to go to the next one. He wants to be a part of everything, small. Everything. Who to speak to, what to do, where to go, how to behave. I mean, he wants to be part of our entire life. And this is why I quote Blackaby so often. If you find out what God's doing and join him. Don't try to make God join you in what you want to do. And it's very important for us. How do we know his voice? We just start learning to listen for it. Uh, you know, when I, going back to coming here as a pastor, when I first applied here, Tommy Thomas didn't want me to be here. I, wa I was not the pastor he thought this church needed. Okay, he wanted a retired man and, and, and wife that could come up here and not have to worry about drawing any money from the church, who could move to chloride with no problem. And that was what he was telling the church they should be looking for. And here I come along and apply. And I was nothing of what he wanted. <laughs> Somehow I think I was what the church needed in, at the time, but it's not what he thought the church needed. Here I am now, five years later. Because this is where God wanted me. And Tommy now is very happy that I'm here. <laughs> When I came here, the church had eight, about eight people in it. They could not even get $600 a month to pay the bills in their offering. So I understand from the world's point of view what he was looking for. But I'm going, God called me to this church, Tommy, and I applied. And they decided to give me the chance. We came in, we rebuilt, we rebuilt the, the, pop, you know, the population of the church quite a bit. We've got offerings now, as, as you guys know by the bulletins, you know, we're now making you know, 22 to $2,500 a, a month, you know, and being able to meet all our bills and do lots of extra stuff that we don't ever do. For the small church we have, we make a lot of, we make a lot of money coming in and, and all of that. But again, how do I now know that def God definitely did call me? Because I've watched everything that he's done to say, yes, this is what he called me. How do I know he called me to Kingman? Because I went from making a lot of money and, and being in debt to making no money and and being out, you know, virtually out of debt. You know, everything, everything has been turning around since we've moved to Kingman. Everything has been turning around since we've came here. So I know that, and at least in those two areas, I've obeyed God and listened to him. And it's just a matter of, like I say, an unction. It's just a great desire to, to be here. I, I know that this is where I'm at, and God would have to do, probably do an audible voice for me to say, I need to go to some other church. And that's what ends up happening is when you're very young in Christ, you just jump at everything and you go in a lot of wrong directions. And then you start getting a little gun shy and then you don't want to do anything when you think it's God's word. And then you really have to, but you have to get to that place where you've matured enough that you've gotten out of just jump when you think it's God's, God's voice and making a lot of mistakes 
to getting out of the par paralyzing fear of doing the wrong thing to just learning his voice. And learning his voice comes from being in his word and just really praying about every decision. Praying. And when I, went to, when I came to Kingman, there was a lot of opposition to coming to Kingman, including from my wife. And that played a big part of it because you're taught very much, listen to your wife's opinion and see if it's something you should be paying attention. Not that she's always right and the, man, you know, and the, the husband is the one that makes the last call, but a husband who doesn't listen to his wife it can also be a great fool because the wife usually has great insight on what, what's going on and, and God's opinion. So it was a very hard decision when you're, my wife is saying, no, I don't think this is where we're supposed to go. And I'm going, she wanted to stay where we're at. I'm going, we are not staying where we're at because I know that this is not where God wants us. But it is one of those things you learn to listen and hear God's voice. And it just takes practice. And like I say, the biggest thing about it is you begin to learn to hear it. And you take the steps as you hear it and you pray. And the most important thing you can do is when you think it's God's voice is pray. God, is this what you want me to do? Help me to know. Help me to know that this is your voice. Now, the more mature you are and the more you should know his voice, the less uh, Gregorious those <laughs> uh, signs are going to be. When you're, just walking, when you're just starting with God and you need a sign, he'll show you some big signs. He'll make it abundantly clear that you're supposed to, to be doing something. Uh, the more you know him, the less it's going to be. The more you'll have to say, God, I know this is what you want. I'm going to step out in it and make it happen. Unless you close every single door. And God can close every single door. Uh, I am not a fan of open doors because Satan can open doors just as easily as Satan. Well, God, there's this great big wide open door leading to the pit of hell. You know, if you open the door, you must have opened it for me. <laughs> no, kids. You know, Satan can open doors too. And that's why you've got to be very careful and make sure that you're not just saying, well, this door's open. It's got to be God's plan. Uh, open doors are a good sign that it might be God's plan, but don't just walk through them blindly without talking to God about, about that. All right? Does that help in any way, shape, or form? Let's get back here. Where were we? Uh, oh, this says the Lord when the Lord has not spoken. This happens in a lot of cases. People will tell you that they've heard from God. And been in churches where somebody will tell me you know god told me to do such and such or god told me to say such and such to you and i look at him i'm going well god hasn't told me that so i guess it does, i guess one of us isn't hearing right and until i know better i'm assuming that it's you now god sometimes will tell somebody to give you some message but if they do it's, it should come across in a humble way it really should be a humble presentation because god does it in a humble way he's not going to say well you've got to do this or thus saith the lord that's not a very humble way of doing it and probably isn't God. Uh, people have defended their bad actions by saying, God told me. Well, your action is against scripture and against, against the doctrine, so God did not tell you to do that. Sorry, the word of God trumps your God told me. But in those churches where, where you hear that a lot, that, that is the magic words will stop arguing because God told me and, and I know God well enough that he, you know, that he told me to do this sin, I'm going to continue doing it because God told me to do it. And uh, so be very careful with any statement of God told me. And make sure it is God that, that has told you to do it. Verse 29, the people of the land have, have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrong, wrongfully. 
So now he's dropping down, not just the prophets, not just the princes, but the people of the land are taking advantage of each other. He says they've, they've used oppression. They've treated each other violently. They've exercised robbery and vexed. And vexed is to, to do ill to people, to, to hurt people with uh, violence. And he says, and yea, they've oppressed the stranger. Now, this is quite wrong, and yet, you know, again, it's very much like what we're facing today. People taking advantage of other people all the time. Uh, and uh, it used to be in this country that you, you could take somebody at their word. You could, you know, take a job just because they gave you their word. Now you better have it all down in piece of paper with, with every little bit of it spelled out in, in detail, or you're not going to get your payment that you're supposed to get. And they'll go, well, it, we, didn't have a, we didn't have a contract, or it wasn't in the contract. And we, we need to be very careful because this is God's, it says, the people have done this, and we're, we're there. We're there right now, and we're getting worse. You know, one of the signs that we're in the end days is just that, that people will do what's right in their own eyes. Every imagination of their heart is evil. And, you know, the sad thing is there's so many people out there that are doing what's right in their own eyes and every imagination of their heart is evil. And some of them put on good faces. <laughs> you know, they look good to you until you really get to know them and it's like, whoa, you really, you did that? You did what? You, you know, you took advantage of that person, why? Well, I just needed it. Yeah. I needed what they had, so it's, it's okay. I'm, I got away with it. And, uh, this is the downward procession that he's looking at. He says, my priests are doing it. My, the people are doing it. And now he's down to the people. And then we see God in verse 30. I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before, before me for the land that I should not destroy them, but I found none. This is a sad statement. Now, what this exactly means, I don't know, because Jeremiah is out there prophesying in Jerusalem but there has to be this place where God says there's not enough people standing for me when Abraham was pleading with God to not destroy Sodom he goes uh, you know bear with me God uh, would you would you destroy it if you found a hundred righteous uh, okay what if you only found 50 what if you only found 20 what if you only found 10 and you know he kept bargaining with God how how low will you go God before you'll say that there's enough righteous in there to keep the city. He was looking at this idea. There's a point where, there's, where God says there's not enough righteous for me to declare, the, hold back the judgment. And in Sodom and Gomorrah, I think Abraham stopped for a reason at 10 because he figured that we had Lot and his wife. He had two unmarried daughters. And then it said that he had sons, plural, and daughters, plural, and their family so that would have been at least four uh, eight uh, so he figured there was at least ten righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah because he figured at least Abraham, a lot in a lot in his family would be righteous which really says a lot about Lot's family and how badly he was doing training his family that Lot with ten people in his family did not have enough righteous in his family to save the city but you know where is the point for America where God says there's not enough righteous left in America 
to keep America from being destroyed for the whole world. You know, for, the, for the rapture of the church to happen and take out every, all the Christians so that the world can go through its final suffering. What point is it that the righteous will be just so few that God says there's not enough to stand in the gap and my judgment will flow? Because obviously Jeremiah wasn't enough. Uh, so it's more than just one that he was looking for. And every time he took the prophet society, he says, I've got a remnant. So the remnant wasn't enough to, to avoid the judgment. There's always a remnant. God says that there's always a remnant. There's always the people that are following him. During the Middle Ages, when the Catholic Church dominated the religious scene and was taking and getting further and further away from the Christian beliefs, there was a remnant of, of Christians that are holding strong to the faith. They were dying every time they turned around, but there was a remnant holding on to the Christian faith. There's always that remnant. When is the remnant too small? Only God knows the answer to that. And we're looking at the possibility that we could be in that generation where the remnant is too small. And it's really sad because I've visited churches where there is no presence of God whatsoever. And, you know, in some of these churches you go to, if God walked into it in, in the flesh with his whole spirit, he'd probably be kicked back out because he would be disrupting their, their program. Now, is it all churches? No. A lot of churches? Unfortunately, there's a lot of churches that are turning away from God and his word. And we need to be very careful about that. That's one of the things about it. And when I recommend that somebody goes to church, I try to make sure they go, you need to go to a Bible-believing church, and if you need help, I'll help you find one because I can get on the Internet and find out who's preaching Bible, Bible messages. No matter where they're living, I can find a place to, for them to go by getting online. But you know, God will also protect his children. If they're one of his children, he'll get them into a Bible-teaching church as well. But he says, I sought for a man that should make up the hedge, build up the walls, <laughs> make up the hedge, build up the walls, and stand in the gap. And I couldn't find one. Right now, we've still got a lot of people standing in the gap, trying to fight. Trying to fight the laws that are going against us. Trying to fight for God, bring God back. Sometimes within denominations, getting the denominations back in line with God's word. But yet, it's almost a losing battle in many cases, but we try we try working on it. Really? Standing in as guards so that say, the enemy does not come through the gap in the walls and making sure the enemy could not get in through the gap. It's a war term. You stand in the gap. You are guarding the, the hole in the wall, basically, so that the enemy cannot get into that wall. In this case, it's not just literally the, the gap of the literal wall, but it is the gap in the religious wall. Trying to get the enemy out of changing God's way. You know, make the holy holy and the, and the unholy, un, you know, profane, trying to keep out lies and deceptions. Uh, during the Middle Ages, the Christians in the minority, you know, the, the, the remnant were trying to keep Christianity powerful while the Catholic churches were selling indulgences and raising money by telling people that if you want your, you want your, your, your reprobate father who did everything wrong his entire life, just give us a, give us a hundred thousand uh, gold pieces and he can go to heaven. You know, that's the stuff they were doing and the remnant was going, no, it's God's grace and it's too late once you're dead. 
and the church was you know the church was becoming very evil in its way it presented itself and and it was that idea you stand up and say no this is what god says and this is what he's looking for you know you're supposed to be you're supposed to be not harvesting your fields every, you know planting your fields every 6 years you're supposed to go to the temple and offer sacrifices you need to be getting into the word you're supposed to know know his word and this is what he means by standing in the gap you want a man to come up and say no this is what god says and same thing in our day and age he wants he wants christians to stand up and say no this is sin you know we're not going to say it's okay we're not going to say homosexuality is okay we're not going to say that living together is okay we're not going to say that telling lies is okay that stealing is okay we're not going to go there we're not going to go to the idea of there's no absolute standard because god is the absolute standard and we're going to stand up and be hated for standing up the problem with standing in the gap is that people hate you literally hate you because you are telling them that they're sinners and that there is sin because the world is trying to make everything to the place where there's no sin the whole problem with evolution is to get rid of God and if they can get rid of God there's no absolute standard and anything goes whoever's strong enough makes the rules and that's the evolutionary process if I'm strong enough to get my way then I make the rules because I'm God you know little g god i'm god of my time and my my territory because i'm strong enough to make the rules hitler hitler was bringing out the, the completion of evolution because i'm strong enough to kill off all the inferior peoples out there and anybody who's not of my race the aryan race is inferior i'm going to kill them all and he almost got away with it you know because he was very powerful strong charismatic and got people to do this and that is the way of evolution if you're strong enough then you then you will get away with it which is also the biggest problem with those that are evolutionist and uh, deny God how can you say anything is evil if there's no rule out there but except who is strongest how can anything be wrong it's only wrong if somebody says it's wrong and that person who says it's wrong has to be strong enough to enforce that it's wrong and if they're not strong enough to enforce that it's wrong, then it's not wrong by the, by the rules of evolution. So, you know, you can't have a good atheist or a good evolutionist because there's no standard for good. Because one person's good is, is not another person's good by their, their rules. You have to have a standard, and our standard is God. God gives us the rules, and he demands that we follow his rules because they are his rules and we need to stand up and say these are God's rules and it's going to make us very unpopular with people very unpopular with the lost world when you say no this is what God says end of story <laughs> don't need to argue with you because you're you know you'll eventually know that God is true and every man's a liar even though it may be the day you're standing before him at the white throne judgment and you find out that every word that he said was true and every word that you said was a lie and at that point it's too late so we look at this and say, God, what is it that you want us to do? How is it that you want us to follow through? And he's looking for somebody to stand, stand for him. Not that he even needs it in one sense, because he's powerful enough to make it happen. We read the book of Revelation, and there's 144,000 Jewish witnesses. Later on, 
we've got the two witnesses of the temple, and later on we get an angel flying through the skies declaring the gospel message. You know, that just shows us that God never needed us in the first place. You can have an angel running around heaven just yelling out the gospel all the time. You know, he never really needed us. He just allowed us the privilege of working for him and giving the gospel message out. He's never needed us, and yet he gives us the privilege of serving him. The privilege of serving him. And have you ever thought about that? It's a privilege. And yet how many times do we look at it and we're scared to death to serve God? You know, or God, I just don't know that I'm going to go out there and do this. And people might make fun of me, and God says, you're my servant. I'm going to reward you. I'm going to give you the strength. I'm going to give you the power. And yeah, they're going to make fun of. They've always made fun of me, whether I was talking about Jesus or not. Oh yeah, they make fun of him all the time. But they also make fun of us all the time, whether we're for Christian or not. They'll make fun of us. And it says, you know, and he says, I looked for the man to stand in the gap that I should not destroy it, but I found none. He says, I'm looking for anybody so I don't have to destroy Jerusalem. This is my city. This is my, I put my name on this city and I can't find anybody who's willing to stand for me. Uh, and like I say, anybody's kind of a far-fetched thing because Jeremiah is there preaching, so this anybody is not just literally anybody, but he, whatever number it is that God's saying, I haven't found that number of people. My remnant is too small in Jerusalem to keep it from being destroyed. You know, our prayer for, for us is, God, help us to bring the remnant out. Help us to increase. Because that point where the remnant is too small is when everything starts. Everything will start. The rapture will happen and, and the tribulation will fall on this world and the seven-year clock will start running and we will enjoy time in heaven, which will be great for us. Our, our hassles are over. We'll be at the marriage supper of the Lamb with this celebration and come back with him in, in, in victorious army. And be, you know, wonderful battle. That, you know, have you ever thought about the real battle when Jesus comes back? He's coming on a white horse with all of his saints following him. He speaks, all the enemy dies. <laughs> you know, quite a war. <laughs> you know, pretty, pretty quick war. <laughs> and we rule for a thousand years with him. And then Satan is released for one more hurrah to try to get people to turn against God. And the sad thing is, is he gets people to turn against God. Even though they've had a thousand years of perfect living, they're going to turn against him. Because there's always going to be those people who don't want to be made to, to worship. And they're going to decide that they want to try to fight God. Really ruined, ruined our, the thought process. In school, they teach you that our ultimate goal is to live perfect and be, if you just give us enough freedom, we'll be, we'll be perfect. And if we were perfect, then nothing bad would happen. Uh, and perfect is, perfect is defined, I don't know if you understand this, but in school, they define perfection as doing what you want to do that makes you feel good. Okay? But if everybody's doing what makes them feel good, that means others are having something done to them that doesn't make them feel good. So you cannot have a utopian world that they think they can have by everybody doing what they want to do that makes them feel good because what they do will hurt somebody else. So they will never have a utopian world, but you try to explain that to them and they do not understand that. I tried to explain that to several of my professors who had this idea that this is the ultimate in the life. 
is to do what makes you feel good. And I'm going, that is so stupid. It might make you feel good, but the rest of the world can feel miserable while you're feeling good. Yeah. But it doesn't click in their minds that what they're teaching and what they're believing is not sustainable. And this is what goes on in the world. The world lies to itself ultimately. Because it's all about what makes me feel good. As long as I feel good, the rest of everybody else can just go to hell and have a bad life. I really don't care. As long as I feel good. That's the world's point of view. That's the flesh's point of view. Just make me feel good. I don't care about the rest of the world. You know, if, if they can be good and, and I feel ultimately good, great. But if not, who cares? The exact opposite of the Christian point of view that God brings us. That we want to lay down our life so that others can be benefited. That's the Christian way of doing anything. That's what Jesus did. He came and laid down his life for the entire world. Even when he was walking on this earth, he laid down his life and his desires to live amongst all of us dirty, filthy, non-Christian believers at the time, or non-believers at the time. And he laid down his life to minister to them. And then he gets Christians who don't want to lay down their life for, for others, and he still lays down his life. You know, but this is the ultimate in Christian living. I lay down my rights, my desires for other people to benefit. Paul said that, God, I would go to, gladly go to hell if all of my nation would go, to, would go to heaven with you. And I think he meant it. He was willing to suffer because of his great love that he had for his people, that if they could all go to heaven, he'd go to hell for them. Moses said the same thing about these people that drove him crazy every, for 40 years. At one point he said, Father, you know, God, if you're going to destroy them, take me instead. As long as you take them, you can take me. Do we have that kind of heart for people? God, I am willing just to lay down my life to the greatest harm in my life if you will just help these other people. God, I'd be willing to spend eternity in hell if you would just take my whole family into heaven with you. That's great love. Now, it's nothing God's ever going to do, but do we have that kind of love that says, God, I'm going to lay down my life. I don't have to be right. I don't have to be the one that's, that gets, gets my way. That's all of what we keep, that I keep teaching. God wants to be our defense. He wants to defend us. I don't have to go out and prove that I'm right. I don't have to have my way as a Christian. And sometimes I do a good job at it. Sometimes I don't do a good job at it. He would have known that Paul had a love for his people because Paul had a love for his people. Now, did that love come from him being saved and becoming a Christian and, and deepening that love? But as for myself, as God has taught me to love people, I've become more and more willing to lay down my life for people. Now, there was a time when I didn't even like people. I was a loner. I was happy to be a loner and didn't like people. The less I had to deal with people, the better. And so God has taught me to love people. And now I'm getting more and more willing to just lay down my life and say, God, I can be, I'm willing to be wrong if you'll just win this person. I don't care what I look like. I don't care. We're seeing more and more separation of people. Facebook, Twitter, all these places where you have quote unquote friends. I have hundreds of friends. I don't know who they are. I've never seen them before other than the little picture I see on their, on their thing. But I've got hundreds of friends. Right, who can you call in the middle of the night when your car breaks down? You know, which of your Facebook friends are you going to call to come out and rescue you? 
but this is the way the world is going into a very isolated, unconnected world. All right, last verse real quick here, 31. Therefore I have poured out my indignation upon them. I, I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath and my way I have, have I recompensed upon their heads, says the Lord God. When his fury falls, it comes hard. When God's fury fell on Sodom, it destroyed the entire valley of Sodom and Gomorrah. When God's fury fell upon the time of Noah, it destroyed the entire world other than Noah's family. When God's fury fell upon uh, the, southern, the northern kingdom, often called Samaria, it, they were taken into captivity with captivity and many, many died and were, and were taken captive and brutalized. When Jerusalem falls, it's going to be many thousands die as they go into captivity. Uh, when they, when in his fury fell upon uh, Israel at 70 AD, many thousands died. When his fury falls in the seven years of tribulation, millions are going to die. Millions. Just in my quick study on what he says, a quarter, this quarter will die and a quarter here and a third here, about 68% of the entire world's population will be dead by the end of the tribulation period. That's a lot of disease. It's not just disease, it's just a lot of death. You're going to have billions and billions of people that die. Fiery anger. Just being angry with something isn't isn't indignation, but trying to totally tear them apart and rip them up, rip them to shreds, verbally and/or physically, is indignation. If you're trying to ruin their life, that's indignation. Just to be mad at them is not indignation. So when God says his fiery ang his indignation, he's talking about really he's going in to destroy. It's off the scale when God says. My indignation. If somebody's talking about indignation, they're talking. They are so, they are spitting blood and and looking to destroy. So we want to look at this. God is saying, my people have so far gone, I can't even find enough people to be able to say they're going to be saved. And He says, I'm going to judge them. How far are we from that in our day and age? I don't know. How far is our country from that? Our country started on the foundation of, of God. And we are so far from that foundation that who knows if we're not closer than most of the world just because of how far we've fallen. It's one thing to fall from a very low perch, you know, and okay, well, we were sinners and you know, treating God bad and now we're, doing, we're treating God worse. But to fall from a nation that was truly honoring and following God to a nation that trying to ban God completely out of every aspect of life is bad. What point will he say, okay, United States, you've had enough, You're, we're done with you? Will we fall at the same time as the rest of the world? I don't know. It's hard to understand on that, but there is judgment coming. One way or other, there's judgment coming. Whether it's the whole world or various countries, there's judgment coming. Let's go ahead and close in prayer, and then we can talk as much as you want. But. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask that you go with us as we go about our business. And Lord, help us to try to build a revival in this day and age and that we will see you work in a mighty way. In your son's name, amen.